Hi, and welcome to the Think Fast podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. You may be wondering why fast with two T's, especially if you didn't listen to the intro of our previous episode. Well, fast with two T's stands for focused advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. Those are our core values at Benchside, where we use machine learning to help scientists run more successful experiments and bring novel medicine to patients faster. On the Think Fast podcast, I explore topics related to our values by interviewing relevant experts both within Benchsci and without. On today's episode, my guest is Kari Sullins. With a background in clinical psychology and organizational behavior, Kari focuses on how people can manage their psychology to perform sustainably. Kari is the co-founder of Atlas, an integrative leadership company that empowers startups to value human well-being as a foundation for business success. Kari also serves as the independent director of leadership at Benchsci. Here, she offers coaching to Benchsci's leaders and employees, and I can personally attest to the value of this, as well as runs workshops and training and collaborates with our culture group to make Benchsci a world-class place to work. Please enjoy this episode and subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss any in future. Hi, Kari, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Simon. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I'm going to start with a question that I didn't tell you I was going to ask, <laughs> naturally. Okay. Can you just describe for people where you currently live and why you made that decision? It's something that fascinates me. Yeah, I currently live in a place called Alta, Wyoming. I'm actually, as we're speaking right now, staring at the Grand Tetons, which are in the Rocky Mountain range. I moved here just before COVID hit. I was traveling a lot for work at the time. Uh, as, as you know, Simon, I spent about a week a month in Toronto. And then as traveling stopped, it made sense for me well, while I was traveling, I guess it made sense for me. What I, the kind of bargain that I made in my head is why not live in the place where I want a vacation? Because I was spending so much time traveling to cities, I decided to live in the mountains. And since COVID has happened, I live in the mountains full time. Did I answer the question in the way that you wanted? Yeah, it's, you've shown me some pictures or some videos sometimes and you literally live at the top of a mountain and it's beautiful. I just wanted to give people that setting. As you're listening to this, imagine Kari at the top of a mountain. So now that we've caught up with, with the present, let's cast our minds back. Could you describe your path to your current role and talk a bit about your education, why you didn't take what might have been considered the traditional path from there, and then how you ended up in consulting and venture capital and co-founding a related business? Yeah, <laughs> I'll try to tell this in the most efficient way that I can. Uh, More efficient than my question, I hope, which was extremely long-winded. It's one of those things, right, where you say, like, how did you get where you are now? And I think, well, the actual first seed of all of this was when I was about six years old, but let's not go all the way back. What I'll say is that I had a childhood that led me to become incredibly interested in human behavior. I was constantly observing the system of my family. And so I've always been really drawn to looking at the way systems either support or don't support individuals. So I'll say that is kind of like the, the very background of all of this. 
when I was just leaving university, I worked at a nonprofit called the YWCA. And I was helping women who are leaving domestic violence situations get back to work. And what I found is that we did a lot of work in getting their resumes ready and getting them ready to get the job. And then they would go to work and become re-traumatized. And so then further my thinking, I'm already obsessed with systems. I'm already obsessed with the way human behavior happens. Then I started thinking, oh my goodness, work is actually taking us backwards. It's re-traumatizing us. It's making us worse rather than making us better as healthy humans. So I found myself in that position, just ill-equipped to do that work. So I decided to go to graduate school for clinical psychology. At that time, I thought I would focus on individuals because I found focusing on systems to be completely overwhelming. I'd done some sort of governmental work prior to going back to grad school and found it to be just unpenetrable. So um, I decided, well, at least I can help individuals, right? If I can focus on an individual, then healing can occur in that way. But what I found is once I got to grad school, my brain just couldn't help but wander again to organizations. And so I, I joined a dual track. So I did my doctorate in clinical psychology for individual couples and family work, and then simultaneously studied organizational behavior and systems. And so in my school, my dissertation was on the organizational values or the organizational factors in self-care of individuals. So essentially I was asking the question, how can we set up companies or organizations in a way that promotes the well-being of the people within them? So that was my schooling. <laughs> and that was also an accident. I really kind of fell into it. And then what the path here, I think, is even more surprising, mostly to me. I randomly met a venture capitalist as I was leaving school. It was a complete random encounter. His name is Howie, and he was starting a fund, and he wanted to invest in the humans over the business. So he was starting to form this hypothesis that if we invested in the well-being of the people building the companies, then the companies would be more successful. And as you can imagine, given the background that I just explained, that was a really enticing question for me. And so I was hired as a consultant to conduct a research study for them and then build a program that would actually carry that out. And what I like to say is that I'm a chronic overbuilder. And so I conducted the research study, I did the consulting project, and they had maybe two or three companies in their portfolio at the time. They were aiming to have about 40 investments. And I built a program that could probably handle about 300. And so we spun it out as a separate company. That company became my current business called Atlas. And that's also the business from which I started working with BenchSci. I'm curious to know what your research found. Was the hypothesis correct? We don't know yet if focusing on the well-being of founders really drives better business returns. We've been at this for about three years, and we look at a six to eight year horizon for determining company success. Maybe we can circle back around in another three to five years, and I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll put something in your calendar. <laughs> Perfect. So that's great background. And we, we talked about well-being. I want to spend a fair amount of time during our conversation talking about leadership 
because a lot of what you're doing with BenchSci and in general is helping to cultivate leadership and guide leadership development. And I've been involved in a number of discussion groups around this concept of leadership. And one of the most interesting things to me is that we all talk about leadership, but then you try to define it. And people have very different conceptions of what leadership is and the characteristics of leaders. So when you talk about leadership, how would you define it? It's an interesting question. And depending on the context or the time of day, what my answer to this question will be different. I'm as guilty as all of the people in your discussion groups around, even though I focus almost entirely on leadership, defining it, I think is really challenging. The way that I want to answer your question is that I think about leadership occurring on at least three levels. The first one is self-leadership. And, and so I think what happens when we when that question gets asked is that we think about people who have formal leadership positions. And the way that my brain approaches it is thinking about what is leadership as a practice or a way of being. And so the first thing that I think about is, is self-leadership. And this is becoming the person that you also want to follow. So I think about leaders as any person who is followable, and that includes yourself. So that's the first way that I think about that. And just like leaders of companies, right? Like a CEO has to set a vision for a company. We as individuals also have to set a compelling vision for ourselves that we want to step into. The second way I think about leadership is what I call informal leadership. And this is any way of being that inspires others to listen to you, be with you, join you, follow you. And this happens in friendships. This happens on the subway, right? This happens when we're at a four-way traffic stop and somebody has to take leadership, right? No one said, you're the CEO of the four-way stop, but there is leadership <laughs> also in that. And then the last one is what we typically think of, which is formal leadership. I actually think of it quite similarly, that formal leadership is about becoming followable. And the characteristics of being followable depend on your context, depend on the people who might follow you, and also depend on the vision that you've set. So I don't know if I defined leadership, but I certainly offered you a perspective. I, I think that's an important way to think about it. And for me, it raises a question, which is whether it's possible for someone to have formal leadership without having achieved self-leadership and whether that often creates a problematic situation. So for example, we talked about startups. You could have a startup founder who is very technically sophisticated and pitches a venture capitalist, raises money and starts a company, but potentially has never put a lot of work into self-leadership and then is in a position where other people are following them, but they haven't established a foundation. So the question this is leading to is, is the gap between self-leadership and formal leadership something that you need to close for someone to succeed as a formal leader? Or can you be successful as a former leader without ever mastering self-leadership? I love this question. It depends how we define success. Sometimes I chat with leaders about this and I say, there are people who are successful at creating a venture that has a lot of money and creates a lot of value, who I think actually have totally skipped over leadership. Sometimes I say they're successful despite themselves, not because of themselves. And so 
if we define success in a financial way, or if we define success as how many employees you have, sure, you can be a successful formal leader without having mastered self-leadership. Now, what I believe is that if you are truly stepping into not like theory X leadership, which I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this is what we would sometimes call transactional leadership. These sorts of leaders usually manage and inspire people through fear or through a structure. You can actually be a, a relatively effective theory X leader without having mastered all these other things. Now the, the sort of preferred way of leadership is something that we'll call theory Y, which is transformational leadership or the sort of leadership that I was talking about earlier, which is becoming a person who's followable. And this is when companies succeed because of their leaders, not despite them. And this is when leaders, I think, actually really add real value. And we see this on teams, right? High-performing teams that are full of what we might call underdogs, right? People who maybe don't have experience in the field or haven't done something great yet, but something about the culture, something about the way that the leader pulls people together brings them into success. And that kind of leadership absolutely requires self-leadership informal leadership, right? Becoming a person who's followable and then also excellent formal leadership capacity. And all three of those have to be in line for that kind of magic, I think, leadership opportunity to happen. My hypothesis is that people who are great theory X or formal leaders without having the other elements established are just pushing issues to the future that you can rule with an iron fist for a certain period of time for example. But eventually, as you see in a lot of dictatorships, eventually it, ca it catches up with you and th the result is, is not good long-term. Yeah. To build on that, we, we talked a lot now about leadership and different types of leadership. Could you summarize some of the key attributes of, of great leaders and potentially, if you think it's worthwhile, rank some of those attributes by their impact? So if people wanted to develop certain traits to be better leaders, are there ones they should focus on over others? But we can start at the question of what are the key attributes of a great leader? Yeah. And I like that you asked about traits or attributes versus skills or experiences, because I do think that there's, again, looking at formal and informal leadership, there's sort of two categories here. Of course, leaders need to have technical ability. They need to be able to get stuff done and they need to be able to manage people and be organized. And so those are skills that I think are important for great formal leadership. But the traits are the attributes for me, the, the first and the foundational and the most important for me is self-awareness. And perhaps um, it's not surprising given that I said that all great leadership starts with self-leadership. And without self-awareness, none of that is unlocked. And so this is the foundation of everything. If you don't have self-awareness, you can't improve things. You don't know what's going on with other people. You don't know what's going on with yourself. So that's number one for me. And then what happens just outside of that is excellent people skills. We might talk about this as emotional intelligence, right? There's a whole category of skills and, and characteristics that kind of hang with emotional intelligence. But what I put in this category is actually truly caring and noticing people really care about them, notice who they are, notice what they need, having some understanding of how people move into action and motivation. There just has to be some relational awareness in order for leadership to occur. So for me, that's number two. 
first self-awareness, then basically others' awareness and awareness of the relationship that you have and the impact you have on others. And then the third for me is humility. I see leaders get in a trap a lot by skipping over humility. And this is where we get, people can start moving back into that sort of theory X way of being. Uh, it becomes more about being a hero or being noticed or being excellent or great in some way. And leadership really isn't about personal achievement. And if a leader can get stuck in that category, they skip over what actually the core need of leadership is. And so I think humility is uh, a really key part in all of this. Fantastic leaders are constantly recognizing what makes others great and then positioning other people in a way that lets them shine. And then I, the last one that I'll say, we could go on and on because there's a ton of different ways to talk about leader attributes. But the last one I'll talk about is being willing to make a decision and take responsibility for it. And I think this is like the buck stops with me as a leader. Like at the end of the day, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to move us forward. And then whatever comes, that's, that's mine. I'm going to, I'm going to hold that. And that doesn't mean that you don't hold others accountable, but it means that you take responsibility for setting the direction and pulling people together towards a common goal. Those are all excellent traits and got me thinking. I want it in a second circle back to how do you develop self-awareness? But before going there, I'll make a comment and feel free to weigh in on it. In my personal experience and seeing other people move into management or leadership positions, I think one of the biggest things that people struggle with moving from individual contributors to managers is not doing the work. So you talked about humility and setting up other people up for success and recognizing other people's success and so on. I think it can be very hard to go from someone who's used to being praised for your individual contributions to being someone whose job is to make sure that a team is successful and other people are successful. And not because of ego, at least in, in my experience, but because you're so used to the sense of individual accomplishment and you judge your self-worth by individual accomplishment. And now you're judging your self-worth by your team accomplishment, but it feels so diffuse. So have you seen people struggle with that? And if so, how do you help them? <laughs> yeah, in fact, one of our colleagues at BenchSize said the other day something that was really, I thought really profound, which is when, especially folks who are new at management step into formal leadership positions, they, they were used to being individual contributors, being really great at them at that usually. And then they add managerial responsibilities on top of that. And then inevitably come completely overwhelmed with all the stuff that has to be done. And when humans are overwhelmed, um, our, our brain capacity shrinks, right? We, be, we move into survival and our go-to survival mechanism is to go what we've already practiced and what we know really well. In some cases, this lands us all the way back in our childhood and we recreate our family patterns. But for managers, what it usually means is that they go rely on their individual contributor way of being because that's what they're really practiced at and good at. And that's where they can get a regained sense of control or mastery and skip over maybe doing that work. So yes, I see that happen, whether it's for an ego reason or if it's about just being overwhelmed and the brain is trying to simplify all the stimuli and go to something that feels more familiar. Absolutely. That's, I think, a part of leadership, part of the development of leadership. And 
I don't know if there's one way to help people navigate through this, but something that I find myself often suggesting to folks is that you have to change your success metric for yourself from something where you get a gold star to seeing your personal success as intimately tied to the success of those on your team. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting to translate what does success mean for me and actually writing a new script around what do I get to feel good about? What do I get to own? And I'll take that back to the last thing that I said that makes a good leader. One of the attributes, which is being willing to make a decision and take responsibility for it. What is tough about owning and taking um, responsibility and then also feeling good about the accomplishments of others is that it's somewhat out of your control. So there's this really scary thing, the scary jump that happens, which is like, I'm actually now hitching my wagon uh, to something that's not mine to control completely. And that means I have to own whatever outcome happens, whether it's success or not success or something totally messy, all of that's mine to own. And so part of that is a mindfulness practice, which is sitting with whatever comes and not being attached to the outcome, but being willing to take responsibility for it anyway. That's a a hard thing to do when you're responsible for the outcome, but not for the work that's going to produce the outcome. It's a... It could be a very stressful position to be in. I have a number of other questions I want to get to, but you prompted something that I want to come back to here. So self-awareness is the foundation of leadership. In some of the discussion groups I've been involved with, we eventually get to that conclusion as well. When we ask ourselves, what is the foundation? It ends up being self-awareness being really important. What are some of the ways in which people can cultivate self-awareness? Yeah. I was on a I was on a podcast yesterday and we talked, I kid you not for an hour and a half about this. I don't think anyone's going to listen to that podcast. It was so long, <laughs> but cultivating self-awareness for some people comes quite naturally. So some of us just by the nature of the way that our childhoods were, the way that our brains are constructed, we have more self-awareness available to us. For some of us, it's more challenging. So I just wanted to start with, there's a spectrum of where people are starting. And depending on where you are in that spectrum, the way that you develop your self-awareness will need to be different. Those of us who are what I would call well-defended, right, or have a way of protecting ourselves from ourselves, will likely need help in developing self-awareness. So I recommend that people find some way to get a mirror. And sometimes that looks like hiring a coach or a therapist or sitting with a peer group and having other people reflect back to you what they're seeing. because for some of us, the only way to see ourselves is through the eyes of others. And so I recommend that being one of the first steps if you're having trouble thinking about how to develop self-awareness. Always asking for help, I think, is a good place to start. If you've already started walking on the journey of self-awareness, you may have some little cracks in your armor and you'll be able to see parts of yourself already. And so there are some methods in expanding that. One is stream of consciousness writing. So trying to dip below the ego story or what's already in your awareness and trying to surprise yourself by letting something sneak out of your subconscious. And so stream of consciousness writing or even stream of consciousness talking can be helpful for people if they're willing to be silly enough to talk out loud to themselves. But some way to just find and be surprised by what comes up is a great way to cultivate self-awareness. 
In that category, I also put seeking feedback. And we do this a lot in a business context, but I don't think we often do this in our personal lives. And often the people closest to us are the ones who can offer us the best feedback that in, improves our self-awareness. And so I'm often encouraging people I work with to conduct what I call a life 360, which is just like a leadership 360 evaluation where you'll be surveying a bunch of employees and colleagues, but do it in your life. Uh, you know, have, have your mother write you a review, ask your partner to, to give you a strengths and weakness breakdown, ask your children to try to offer one sentence that really sums you up. So surveying other people to help you get a better understanding of how it is that you're received. And then there are insight practices, which through a meditation practice or just being quiet or a yoga practice or something like this that helps you to start to run experiments on yourself and just notice what comes up in a place where your nervous system's really regulated. That's where we start to understand the subtler and subtler aspects of self is in those kinds of practices. The personal 360 for me, as you were saying that, my first thought was, I have to imagine the people in your life who are close to you will be much more honest than some of the feedback you sometimes get through work. I had a, this thought about, I wonder what my wife would give me in a personal 360. And I'm pretty sure she'd be very honest. Uh, on a personal note, and you and I, have you've been coaching me for a while now, practices that work for me, meditation is a big one. And I do that daily. And I, my mind is always going. And I, it's, what's amazing to me is you get to a point where you just laugh at your own mind where, where these things come up and you're like, you recognize that that is a ridiculous thought and you don't stop it. You just, but you recognize how ridiculous your mind can be sometimes and journaling for me daily, sometimes with prompts that you've given me. Sometimes I'll journal hundred, 150 words. What's most important is consistency. And then there are some days where you just go on yesterday. I probably wrote 2000 words, 2,500 words. I'll probably never want to read that because it's just this rambling but by the end of it, you just feel like you've got everything out that you needed to, and you've uncovered some interesting gems. So those are some good options for me. As we're talking about leaders, we're talking in the abstract, but I wanted to ask if you have examples of really great leaders you've ever met or heard about. And I'll give you one from my own experience just to set the tone. I was fortunate enough a few years back to work with a company that hired Bill Clinton as a speaker. And I was helping to work security at the desk where we had some people come backstage who could meet him. And so I saw him in three contexts. One, when he was first coming in with his security team, another when he was interacting with people, and another when he was on stage. And the most Amazing thing for me was to see him first walk in with his security team, and he looked like this very gaunt, hunched over man. At that time, he had gone on a vegan diet, I believe, and he just lost a ton of weight. So he was much more slender. And then as soon as he saw a person, like the first person he saw, he was completely transformed. He lit up with a smile and seemed so genuinely interested in the person he was talking to. And then when he presented the charisma and a lot of it came from recounting personal experiences and being humble about his background, despite having been president, were just very magnetic. Now I'm not going to say anything about his politics 
All of that aside, just as an individual, he was magnetic and able to light up a room with his presence. So that was an experience that I had that you could see why people like that are so followable. Who are some similar people or what are some similar experiences that you've had? Yeah, I I think I want to highlight three people. I'll try to do it efficiently again. So the first one is someone that probably no one knows. She's she's quite quiet in her leadership. She's someone who I was really fortunate to be in an organization of which she was a leader. And she was also my mentor now. Her name's Dr. Chris Brems. And she has, you'll, you'll see a theme here. I really enjoy leaders who lead from behind and have a way of understanding and listening. I think that I've really come to appreciate leaders who maybe aren't overly charismatic, although the people I'm gonna talk about are in their own right, but are very thoughtful and lead behind a vision. So she's an example of someone who I think does that incredibly well. What's something I really admired about her when she stepped into leadership in the place that I was at with her she spent the first several months listening and did no action at all, just listening, soaking everything up. And then Simon, you'll appreciate this. Her first act as leader was to take away everything that was unnecessary. (laughs) Yes, very close to my heart, subtraction. And so her first gift to the organization was not something added, but a lot subtracted. And so I really would call her kind of a minimalist leader. Several people described her as soft steel. She had this way of enrolling you in this vision of caring and feeling supported as an individual, but then she really stood strong in making decisions and setting a vision and holding people accountable in a way where people always felt like they were cared for first, but very enrolled in the vision. So I really admire her. The second one that I want to highlight is someone who I'm conflicted about. David White is a poet who I admire quite a bit. And one of my first leadership trainings ever was conducted by him. The reason that I wanted to highlight him is that he spent a lot of time finding what's his mastery and then leading from that place. So he used to have formal leadership positions and found that really wasn't a way that he best led. He found that his leadership really started to become into focus when he became a poet. And so he leads through poetry. And I always think about this as an example of somebody who said, listen, I don't have to look like other leaders. What I have to do is find the way that I'm most followable and then double down on that. And so I really admire him for that. Even though I think there are other ways in which just who he is in his personal way of being isn't always followable, but he's shown incredible leadership through his art which I think is a unique example. Okay, the last one I'll just say really, really fast is Oprah. (laughs) And I love Oprah because I think that she's led in such a personal way. And she not only rallies people around in a formal leadership capacity, right, in her businesses, but also in a thought leadership capacity. She also is someone who I think really leads from behind and in a way that's incredibly thoughtful and reflective. And if you watch interviews with Oprah, the way that she enrolls people in the possibility and the vision that she creates is through empathy. And so I'm often like just paying such close attention to the way that she crafts her narratives in her interviews, because you'll see leadership happen actually in every interaction that she has, where she's pulling people into a vision through understanding where they are. I just think she does that really beautifully. 
all of those examples were, with the possible exception of Oprah, probably the opposite of what most people would have in mind when they talk about leadership. I think people often have in mind tough leaders like politicians or business leaders, Steve Jobs, Jack Welch, Elon Musk, who don't come across the way you just described. And that leads me to the question of what are some of the biggest myths that people have about great leaders? And do you have examples of people that society holds up as leaders, past or present, can be historical figures or so on, that we then try to emulate, but it turns out that's a terrible way to lead? Yeah, this is funny that you just mentioned Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, because when I was preparing for this conversation, those are the two that came up Mm. uh, for me as examples of what myths around leadership look like. And as I said earlier, I'm not at all disputing that both Elon Musk and Steve Jobs created a lot of success and had a lot of formal leadership success. In, in fact, I've worked with folks at Tesla and I'm aware a little bit of the inner workings of that company in particular. And there's a lot of complication in this, right? There are ways in which both Elon Musk and Steve Jobs represent great leadership. But what I think the myths are for me is that being good at your craft, so being a fantastic inventor or being a fantastic visionary doesn't necessarily mean that you have people leadership. So uh, I think that we forget that there's lots of different types of leadership. In the folks that I just discussed, I, I actually mentioned a couple of different kinds of leadership. One, I mentioned people leadership. I mentioned thought leadership. I also mentioned enrolling people in a vision, which is a separate type of leadership. And so I think what we typically think of is that being a visionary leader is what leadership is but we forget that there's all sorts of different ways to step into that. So I think people followed Steve Jobs and follow Elon Musk for their vision, but not necessarily for their being. I, I don't find either of them inspiring in their being of leadership, but I do think that both of them really exemplify huge technological skill, fantastic visionary skill, the ability to make decisions and rally people around them, right? They have some aspects of charismatic leadership. But again, I would say that all of the examples of the people I most admire are missing from, from that sort of thing. The myth is that leadership is one thing, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think with Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, people follow the vision. They just happen to be excellent communicators of the vision. And I think if you took the vision away, you probably wouldn't want to spend a tremendous amount of time with them because they're challenging personalities. I'm going to jump around a little bit just to make sure we cover off questions that I want to make sure we get to. This one might seem like a bit of a jump from where we just were. I did my undergraduate in journalism school, and one of the things we learned was interviewing. And I don't think I was very good at it because usually I didn't care enough about what I was assigned in school (laughs) to ask great questions. But one of our teachers was telling us about a great question that uh, a music reporter asked. I think it was Bobby McFerrin. Uh, And the question was, can everybody sing? And it was just a simple question around, can everybody sing? Because we'd like to think that the answer is yes. And that went into this great conversation about you can be a singer even if you aren't a professional singer and so on. So my question for you, long-winded way of getting there is, Does everyone have the same amount of leadership potential? Does everyone have it in them to lead? And 
If so, is it circumstances that allow some people to develop it over others? And if not, then why is that? Yeah, it's an awesome question. So I'll call out that I'm a people optimist. So I want to just say yes, basically. That's my (laughs) impulse. I want to say yes, everybody can be whatever they want. I also grew up in the early 90s where like everybody can do whatever they want in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I have that in the core of my being. But if I'm going to apply a little bit more rigor to the question, again, I'm going to ask what kind of leadership. So, so yes, any person can be a leader. In fact, I believe that every person should aspire at least to self-leadership. I'm on a mission. In fact, one of the, one of the pieces of the vision of the business that I run is to create a society in which everybody becomes a leader. And that doesn't mean that everybody becomes a CEO or everybody becomes a director or everybody is managing people. That means that everybody has the tools to step into self-leadership. So yes, absolutely. Every human being on earth has the ability to become a leader of themselves. And I would say probably has the imperative to become a self-leader. I think that's a part of our growth as humans in the world. Now, when we talk about formal leadership, there are certainly differences, right? There, And I think that the major sort of sorting of this is the desire to step into leadership. So I'm not actually sure that everybody wants that. And if they don't want it, if they don't desire it, especially that last piece, which is I'm willing to make decisions and take responsibility. I've met tons of people who just say, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And if the desire is not there, then there's no leadership capacity there, right? They will not step into leadership if that's not a desire of theirs. And then there are some other things that I think start to sort people. One is dependent on the cultural context. So In the Western cultural context, extroverted leaders are still preferred, except for by me, obviously, by my examples. I sort of admire introverted leaders, but there are some characteristics that make it easier for people to step into formal leadership, including, uh, I'll, I'll share just a tiny bit about myself. I grew up in a family environment where I stepped into a parenting role, or as in psychology we call, I was a parentified child. And so I started having quote unquote leadership as early as six years old. So I'm quite practiced at it and quite comfortable with it. And so I might actually have a little bit more leadership quote unquote potential than somebody who didn't have that sort of childhood experience. So yes, there are some differences, but I think that the major sorting is actually in desire. And I hope that everybody steps into self-leadership. I completely understand the fear or aversion to taking increasing accountability and responsibility. And I think, yeah, people have self-awareness, then that's not a bad thing. If you know what you're good at and what you're going to thrive with. I have one more question for you about leadership before we go into a couple of questions that some colleagues of ours wanted to discuss. I have to talk about the pandemic. I am scheduled to go get my vaccine today, which I'm very excited about. What do you think will be some of the pandemic's enduring effects on leadership, how we think about it, and how it's practiced? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been trying really hard to separate out remote work from the pandemic, like remembering that they're linked in our minds, but they're two separate things. But I think both are relevant to this question. So the first thing that I want to say is that I believe that COVID has made leaders, especially 
focus and pay attention to the humans within their business more than ever before. So something that happened literally the week after COVID hit the United States, I'm in the States, my business tripled. So I had people that I've met over the last three years, talked to only once, called me saying, our people are suffering, can you help? And so that's something that I hope won't go away, which is that our eyes have been opened to the personal lives and the personal suffering that can occur within an organization. And so I'm seeing leadership become more human-centric because of this. So that's one thing. There's another thing that's related to remote work, which is like, how do you step into leadership when you're used to doing this in person and now you're remote, right? I was telling someone the other day that even uh, something called co-regulation can't occur anymore, which is what happens when we're in person and our nervous systems are actually regulating one another. And part of leadership is saying, it's okay, I've got this, you can trust me. And those words mean more when co-regulation is a part of it. So I think leaders are also learning how to build trust and build relationships in a remote setting, which changes the way that leadership has to occur. And then I think the last thing that I want to mention, and I hope this stays also, is that I believe that a lot of formal leaders used to put on their leadership mask when they went into work in a way, like there was a persona of leadership. People dressed different, held themselves differently, walked around differently, didn't share quite as much of themselves as they might have if they were um, an independent contributor. And now you're conducting leadership with your team, with your three-year-old crawling on your lap, right? And so there's a sort of a humanness or like an evening of the playing field that I think has occurred that changes. Leadership has to happen now from a more authentic place than it might have in the past. Yeah, you can't rely on some of the signals that you used to rely on to establish your authority over people. There has to be something more. Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of questions now that some colleagues submitted when I said that we were going to be doing this interview. I, you know, I'm not going to mention who they are because I forgot to ask them if that was okay. So I'm going to ask the questions though. And the first one is specifically related to uh, being a woman in leadership. What are some of the biggest challenges that you faced as a woman in a leadership role and how have you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I also did a podcast last week on this, (laughs) which I think is interesting. So I'm starting to feel not that special. (laughs) It's just podcast season, Simon. It's not, it's not you. (laughs) Okay. So I have to make the disclaimer that I think I have a lot of privilege as a woman. And like I said, I think I also have some experiences in my life that have predetermined my ability to step into leadership. So I have not struggled as a woman in leadership, I think, as much as some people have. And I attribute that to two things. And then I'll tell you about a struggle that I face and and how I work through that. One is that I'm a very tall woman. So I'm, I'm almost six feet tall. And I also was a performer and then an athlete. And so I have what people call stage presence. (laughs) Some of it is earned and most of it is not earned. I realized at a pretty early age that when I speak, people listen. And so I think that there are some aspects and things I hear from female leaders who I work with, which is like, I'm not heard or people don't notice me or they talk over me or they don't take me as seriously as maybe a man. I have not experienced those things as a 
female leader. So I can't speak to that, although I fully recognize it and see it happening around me. I think in part because of my stature and, and maybe some other things uh, that just hasn't been my experience. What I have experienced is a couple of things that I think are also really common experiences for women. One is that being a young woman, and maybe also because of my height, I'm not sure, but I often find that I get sexualized in my leadership, which I don't think men typically have to experience or navigate through, which is that whatever it is that I'm offering gets reduced down to how I look, or it's almost like a girl boss fetish sort of thing that occurs. And I know that this might be like an uncomfortable topic for this podcast, but I think that's something that a lot of people don't recognize that female leaders walk around with, that there's this constant edge of like, I'm on the edge of being in power and also being disempowered almost in every interaction that I'm having. And so that's something that I've experienced. And I sometimes tell a story. I used to consult for a firehouse so I worked with a group of firefighters. I was the only woman ever in the firehouse. And I was constantly fighting this sort of what I would call bro culture that was existing around my presence in the house. And that's something that I had to seek consultation on and work with my own coach. And I definitely did put on a mask of leadership when I walked in. I became someone who couldn't lead through empathy because for me, it didn't feel safe. So I did lead with sort of formal power and structure in that situation. I think I'll stop there. I think that's enough. Those are good personal insights and experiences. It raised one thought for me and I'm a man, so I don't really have any right to talk on this subject from the female perspective, which I can't. But what I can say is I've often been amazed to be in rooms with, let's say, CEOs of companies when you know the CEO's in the room, but you don't know who it is. Mm. And you look around a room and oftentimes the person who is saying the least and is encouraging other people to talk the most is the person in the highest position of leadership. But then sometimes when women do the same thing, which is really, really important, they get diminished or overlooked just because it's associated potentially with weakness in women, but strength in men. And I think that's problematic because that does seem to me like a good leader is someone who is less talking about themselves and more encouraging other people to speak, but we treat that behavior differently in men and women. I totally agree. I, I work with several female CEOs in addition to leaders at Benchsai and other companies. And the conversation that I'm having with women often is how might we lead as women, right? Rather than stepping into examples of leadership we've seen from men. Um, most of us grew up with most of the examples of leadership being male figures. And so leading as ourselves or leading as women often doesn't come as intuitively. And so I hope that society catches up to Simon so that women may lead from behind and may lead quieter and lead with empathy. Because I think that is stereo stereotypically something that women are quite good at and leading through community. And as long as leadership isn't recognized in that way, that will block women from being that way. And so I think that's a disservice to all of us. I agree. And I, I hope that does change too. I have one more question from a colleague for you. And this one is an interesting one because it's something that's on my mind a lot. I look to the growth in freelance platforms like Upwork. They continue to see significant growth year over year, the rise of remote work to 
blockchain-based platforms that allow people to create completely decentralized autonomous organizations with no central leadership and authority that's earned through contributions. And to companies like Gumroad, which have a completely freelance work model with no full-time employees, even a CEO. And so we've been discussing this at Benchsai, a couple of us. And from that, one of the questions that came up is, what do you think about the rise of these freelance companies where there really aren't any formal leadership structures in place and that leadership emerges more organically. Have you seen something like that be successful? And does there come a point when that self-organization just breaks down? This seems like a very off the beaten path question, but it's one of those things that we've been discussing as we think about organizational structure as our company starts to grow. Yeah, I love this question. And we could do a whole other podcast just on this topic. Part of my grad school work was in studying flat organizations and especially integral organizations that are moving into what I would call groups of self-leaders, right? Rather than formal leadership hierarchies. So the quick answer to the question is, yes, I've seen that completely fall apart and turn into a complete mess (laughs) several times. What causes that to to dissolve, right? If there is no formal leadership structure is a lack of a clear vision, lack of appropriate enrollment and lack of self-leadership. If all of those three things are in place, then a self-organization can be very successful. But there has to be, as we talked about behind Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, there has to be a clear vision that is the leadership North Star, right, of a group. Like that that just has to be there. And if that's ill-defined, then the group's doomed to fail. Now, I think these groups can be incredibly effective. In fact, my organization is mostly freelancers and independent contractors. And what makes it really successful, I wouldn't say that my organization is really successful, but what makes us continue to work this way in a, without chaos is that we're constantly reminding and teaching people how to step into their own self-leadership around the vision. And so we're holding communal spaces where different people in the organization are continuing to bring us back to why are we here and what's your unique contribution and what does self-leadership look like? And as we do that again and again and again, the group becomes stronger and stronger and more efficient. But without that, it's just chaos. It's Lord of the Flies. (laughs) Yeah, it it reminds me of, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, Yuval uh, Noah Harari, in his, uh, his book, uh, Sapiens, he talks about what made humans successful. And his conclusion ultimately is that we can have shared narratives. And if you yeah. can have a shared narrative as a group, then you can believe the same things and move in the same direction without anybody having to tell you what to do. I think that speaks to the value of culture. Okay, we're going to hit one minute here. I have just two, two more questions to wrap it up. Who would you recommend that I interview on this podcast? And that can be people you might know, and then you can connect me with them, which makes my life easier, but also amazing people that you might not know, but would love to hear interviewed. Yeah, I thought of at least one person when I was uh, preparing for this. One is an organization, you could interview anybody there called Jumpscale, which has taken a, a systemic approach to addressing burnout and culture in organizations, which I think is a really interesting I've talked a lot about feelings and empathy and things like that. They come at it from the totally different direction, which is what are the infrastructures and process that promote human well-being? I think that's really interesting. And then I'd also really like for you to interview Oprah. Oprah. (laughs) All right. I I will work on that. I'll see. I could probably find somebody named Oprah who might be willing to come on the show, but we'll have to see about that one. Uh, 
Kari, I, last one for you. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish I asked or that you would like people to know? I would have loved for you to ask me what my favorite part of my job is because you didn't ask it. I'll answer it just really quickly. <laughs> Please. When I, when I came back from kindergarten, my mom asked me what my favorite part of the first day of kindergarten was. She always explains it like this, that I had my hands up in the air and I said, the people. <laughs> That's my favorite part of my job now too, is the people. I love working with folks like you and the rest of everybody at BenchSci. I feel incredibly lucky to be able to be in these kinds of conversations. So thanks for inviting me into this. Thank you. I also will share that I feel quite fortunate you've prompted me many, many times to think more deeply about things that I wouldn't have otherwise and to confront things I wouldn't have otherwise. So thank you for your time. I hope everybody listening to this gets a lot of value from it. I hope you can now go and enjoy your beautiful mountain. And I'm sure I will be speaking with you again soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think Fast podcast. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to learn more about BenchSci and our culture, check out BenchSci.com slash careers. That's B-E-N-C-H-S-C-I dot com slash careers. Until next time, stay safe and think fast. <laughs>